This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. Good morning and welcome to One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show here on BCFM where we talk all things environmental in Bristol, the UK and the rest of the world. My name is Shona Jamfrey. I'm presenting this programme for several months while the amazing Penny Southgate has a very well-deserved rest. So today we are going to be looking at some new stories related to the environment, as always, both in Bristol and further afield. We're going to play some tunes and today we have a really interesting interview with Caroline Dennett. She used to work for Shell. You know Shell. The big, uh, the big oil company. But last year, she very publicly quit her contract with them just before their AGM. And then this year, she has gone back to their AGM and addressed them to outline specific safety issues with their project in the Niger Delta and how the resulting leaks and spills are affecting the workers on the ground. It's a really interesting interview. She explains the reality of workers' safety and her own first-hand experiences of how Shell responds to safety and environmental concerns. So welcome to One Love, One Planet. Thank you for joining us. Settle in for what is sure to be an interesting hour. You can get in touch with us via WhatsApp by messaging us on 07501820075. That number's also on our website. We've already had a message in from Naomi, who's painting her son's bedroom as she listens. Hi, Naomi. Yeah, let us crack on then with the news that's been happening. So little summary of news happening across the world environmentally. In New York, they have recently uh, passed a new bit of legislation that is going to protect the birds and the bees. So the New York State Legislature has passed the Birds and Bees Protection Act, a first in the nation bill that will hopefully rein in the use of neurotoxic neonicotinoid pesticides I don't know if I said that right the short term is neonics Um, and these pesticides are uh, research shows that they are really really uh, bad for birds and bees and affect their loss obviously at the minute in the UK we are experiencing something of the silent spring where we're not hearing as many insects and birds as normal which some people think is maybe linked to the heat wave that we had last year And so, uh, but this uh, piece of legislature that they've passed in New York, uh, it bans the neonic uses and that research shows provide no economic benefits. It bans these pesticides and says promotes instead uh, safer, effective alternatives. Neonics are linked to massive bee and bird losses that impact food production, contaminate water and soil and create human health concerns. Um, So this piece of legislation, it doesn't go as far as Europe's total outdoor neonic ban, but it is the first law to address this in the USA. And every year for the past decade, New York beekeepers have lost more than 40% of their bee colonies, largely due to these pesticides. So it is hoped that this piece of legislation has been described as a landmark piece of legislation will really protect that in the New York area. Um, Other news, right, going across the world to the Himalayas. This is a headline in Al Jazeera. Himalayan glaciers may lose 75% of ice by the year 2100. This is a report saying that the melting of glaciers will cause dangerous flooding and water shortages for nearly 2 billion people who live downstream of rivers that originate in the Himalayas. Uh, Glaciers in Asia's Himalayas are melting at unprecedented rates. Scientists are warning of dangerous flooding and water shortages for the nearly 2 billion people who live in the area. These people have contributed next to nothing to global warming, but they are at high risk due to climate change, That the authors say. Current adaptation efforts are wholly insufficient. We are extremely concerned that without greater support, these communities will be unable to cope. Various reports have found that the cryosphere, which is the regions on Earth covered by snow and ice, reports have found that they are a 
among the worst affected by climate change. And for example, Mount Everest glaciers have lost 2,000 years of ice in just the past 30 years. And it's very hard to kind of refreeze ice once it melts. So that is extremely concerning and another sign, obviously, of just how serious the climate crisis is and how governments are not doing enough to tackle it. And on that note, bang, moving to Australia, we're really doing a world tour today. Climate protesters have blocked coal shipments in three states. Um, so climate protesters in Australia are disrupting coal shipments and motorway traffic at ports in Brisbane, Melbourne and Newcastle. Not our Newcastle, Australia's Newcastle. Uh, a climate protester has suspended herself from a rail bridge at the coal port, blocking trains. Um, the protester who's suspended from the rail bridge has been live streaming her protest online. Uh, Blockade Australia, which is the uh, organisation behind it, said in a statement that the protests were part of a coordinated mobilisation in response to Australia's facilitation of the climate and ecological crisis and its active blocking of impactful action toward a safe climate. They're saying Australia is actually blocking people trying to implement a safe climate. Blockade Australia said direct action like blocking the port is needed to shake up the system to move on from business as usual. And that is obviously very similar to a lot of the protests that we've seen in the UK from organisations such as Just Stop Oil. So there's a lot going on at the minute. It all can feel a bit overwhelming, but it is always good to hear from people who are sort of know a lot, who are experts in their field. We've had some really interesting interviews recently. Uh, from people who are experts and we're going to have one shortly with Caroline Dennett, someone who used to actually work for Shell, who was employed to make Shell's um, work as safe as possible and then last year quit very publicly um, because uh, what she found was was ne not nearly good enough and she's going to be going into all the detail about that and then what she's been doing recently uh, just after this song. And today we're delighted to have a very special interview with Caroline Dennett, a former Shell contractor, a former contractor with Shell who quit her contract very publicly about a year ago and has now gone back to address their executive committee at their most recent AGM. And she's going to fill us in all about it. But Caroline, good morning. Morning, Shona. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, actually. Thank you. Apart from the state of the planet, of course, which is Absolutely. Uh, always a worry. That's sort of all underlying, you know, how are you, despite everything going on in the world, tends to be the, the, the question. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, but yeah, so you, um, yeah, you're, you're going to fill us in on, because this is, I'll admit this is a story I, I wasn't really aware of, but you, could you remind, uh, remind me, remind listeners what happened a year ago? Yeah, so a, a year ago, uh, on the on the 23rd of May last year, I very publicly quit my contract with Shell. So I had been a safety culture consultant at Shell for over 10 years. Um, I was approached by them in, in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon Gulf of Mexico disaster, which some people may recall that happened in 2010. There's been a big Hollywood blockbuster film about that oh, event. Yes. Um, so that was BP, right? But it could have been any one of them. So I was contacted by Shell not long after that, sort of like early on in the, in the following year, saying, look, you know, that could have been us, could have been anyone. How can we, can we, you know, can we kind of understand what's going on at the front line to really get some indication about people's behaviours, you know, are there pressures on people, how are people interacting with the safety systems we've got in place from a very much a human behavioural point of view rather than, the systems themselves. So they asked me to design a, a survey to understand, 
you know what's going on at the front line and, and your background your background is in is in that sort of human safety component is that right well actually then my background was very much and it still is in in research so understanding behaviors I guess and the drivers of, of human uh, behavior and I guess it didn't really matter as it turned out whether I had a technical <laughs> safety background or not you know because the the special specialism they were after is is really a very good survey that people could naturally answer and wasn't leading to any one particular answer so that's why they they almost wanted someone completely independent of the uh you know uh, you know of the systems uh, right, and the engineering yeah. systems and of course over the 10 years that I've been doing this I've 11 years 12 years now I've, I've picked up you know a lot of a lot of expertise along the way because for a long time that was pretty much all I was doing for not just Michelle but other you know other kind of high risk industries as well so yeah so really to understand the behaviors that drive it because you can have the best systems in the world you know but if if people uh, don't understand them don't understand what they're being asked to do don't feel empowered to uh you know to make changes don't feel that leadership is um is encouraging people to raise concerns you know perhaps they might roll their eyes or you know there might be some consequences if people raise concerns you know you can have the best systems in the world but if the people who have to operate those systems you know don't get it or do get it but no one's listening to them which is often right. the case yeah. uh, then 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 your systems are, are worthless really because on their own uh, they're not going to save you from a disaster Right. Yes. Okay. So that was your rule. Um, and you did that for Shell for about 10 years or yeah. so. Um, and then what happened to sort of um, lead you to quit? Yeah. So I was never very comfortable from the outset about working for the fossil fuel industry, because back then in kind of 2010, 2011, you know, I was aware of the pollution that they caused, perhaps not so much around climate change, because, you know, that wasn't in everyone's kind of mind back then, but we could see the pollution. We could see the pollution. I was aware of what had been happening in Nigeria for years. Obviously, there was the Gulf of Mexico incident. So, you know, the fossil fuel industry wasn't like, oh, yes, I can't wait to work for them. It was a bit like if I'd been approached by tobacco industry. You know, right. you kind of think, hmm, yeah. There's something not very pleasant about this somewhere. But I thought, OK, they're trying to do good. You know, they want to try and prevent uh, big leaks and explosions and, and keep their people safe. So I thought, okay, you know, fair enough. Everyone should have the right to to do that. So I thought, yeah, let's see where this goes. But, you know, over time, my awareness of what's happening to the environment with climate change became, you know, increasingly uh, stronger. And then I became very connected in 2019 with uh, Extinction Rebellion, actually, and really learned the you know, the science behind what's happening. And I thought I knew something about kind of climate change by then because I'd been around green politics for a few years. But, you know, I was really shocked and horrified to learn just how badly we are impacting the planet in a very negative way. So I started to really question, you know, can how much longer can I do this for? But, you know, you still you convince yourself, hey, I'm doing some good here. You know, I'm trying to prevent pollution. And so you tell yourself these things, you know, so you can sleep at night. Um, and I also kind of didn't want to abandon the, the people that I was working with because, you know, they had a hard task to try and keep things safe as well. So I carried on. But they were just, you know, it was just getting to the point where I, thought, I can't do this anymore. Shell have no regard for the environment, you know, despite what they might say, they, they you know, they, they really don't. They are failing to address, you know, anything to do with climate change and uh, nature loss. And I just thought I can't, you know, I just can't, I can't live with this any longer. But beyond that, 
I could have just gone quietly, of course, but I thought, you know, this is a real opportunity here to try and raise awareness about what the fossil fuel industry are doing, what, you know, their disregard for for the planetary systems that we have. So I just thought maybe I can say this a bit louder, and get, you know, and do some good with this. And I, yeah, I, I was in contact. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, in April last year, there was a action at Shell's headquarters in London by Extinction Rebellion, and they were calling out for whistleblowers. I guess they, I saw, I saw an online post which said, you know, do you know something that could uh, help us? So I thought, yeah, I do know something actually. So I got in touch with them, and then we kind of came up with a bit of a plan for how I could communicate this with the most impact uh, that, that I could have. So I just did a public. Uh, LinkedIn post a video uh, and it just went absolutely nuts. <laughs> it went wow. viral, as they say, and um, yeah, there was a bit of a media frenzy, and the message really got out. And um, Shell didn't. It was a day before the AGM last year for Shell, and I don't think they saw it coming. Uh, and and it did have yeah a far far greater reach and impact than I ever thought was going to happen. Amazing. So and in that video, your main message was about high Shell are yeah basically greenwashing things not try not actually taking responsibility for what they're doing and just try you know tweaking things around the edges to look better it's sort of you were I guess disillusioned with them by that point that they were actually going to do any uh anything useful any systemic change absolutely because they are without apology wedded to continuing to extract oil and gas and they make, they kind of, they do speak with forked tongue because, you know, they do have all this greenwashing. But if you ask them directly, do you have any intention to wind down fossil fuels? They'll say no, not until governments demand that we stop or until it's consumers' fault. You know, it's consumers' fault because we, there is demand for, uh, you know, fossil fuel based products. Um, they'll say it's the government's fault because they could put in policy, which they could, uh, to not give any more licenses for oil and gas extraction, but they don't. So they kind of take no responsibility. They don't lead in any way. They don't think, oh, actually, what we're doing is pretty unsafe now and has been actually for about the last 30 years. Let's do something proactive about that. They're just carrying on with business as usual because they say that's what everyone wants. So on the one hand, they spend millions, you know, on greenwash advertising and messages. On the other hand, they... If you ask them directly, they'll say no. We're going to. We have no intention to to stop. Um, and they, you know, their latest message, I suppose, for the last year, eighteen months, is that gas, gas is our friend now. You know that gas is low carbon, and we can go on extracting that and burning that. Well, it's not. It's lower carbon than oil and coal. That is for sure. But it's got other problems because it's got methane, and methane is actually a worse uh, greenhouse gas in terms of how how quickly it warms up the environment. Uh, it doesn't last as long as carbon dioxide does, but it is it is definitely hugely problematic. So it's not a green renewable energy source. You know, it is very much a fossil fuel. Right, yeah, okay. So what have you been up to in the last year then? So I imagine that they... Uh, yeah, they were they were not very happy, obviously, to see you quit. Um, but what, what have you been up to in the last year? Yeah, so it's been really interesting. Uh, it's been incredibly positive. The response to what I did last year was overwhelmingly positive. positive. The messages of, of support were overwhelming, including perhaps from some other people who had 
more just quietly walked away from the industry. So I've been kind of spent a lot of time talking to media, actually, but not just media, you know, talking to um, university lecturers and professors who are working with young people on sustainability, you know, those kind of things like educational pieces. Um, yeah, so I've done a lot of that. I've still got my business, so I still do, you know, some other research work. So I've been quite busy um, in, in that field, but continuing on with campaigning, uh, still very active in Extinction Rebellion. I'm also very active in uh, divestment campaigning. So I don't know if people are aware, but lots of pension funds, including our local authority pension funds. So if you're an if you've ever been or still are an, an employee of Bristol City Council or Bath and North East Somerset Council or Somerset Council or Dorset, Devon, Cornwall, any any council, uh, you you know you will pay a part of your um, part of your salary uh, into a savings account, which is basically your pension fund, and some of that pension fund money is still being invested in fossil fuels, including in Shell and, and BP and the like. Uh, so we've been campaigning for quite a number of years to ask the pension fund um, committees in each of those councils and Brunel Pension Partnership, who manage the pension fund for all the West Country local authorities, to just stop funding the fossil fuel element. You know, please take our money out of that because that's workers pay effectively. And I think most people now do not want their hard earned money going into fossil fuel production, um, they would rather that is spent on, you know, invested in something that's more future positive, uh, you know, that is actually going to help us have a future that you can retire into. Because right at this moment, if we carry on burning the fossil fuels that we're doing, those people who are currently employed and paying into a pension fund will not enjoy that pension fund because we just won't be here to to enjoy it or life will become you know so so difficult you you won't be getting a pension fund so we really have been urging people to get on board with that campaign and just ask our local authorities and we're winning because I, I, so I live in Dorset and the Dorset pension fund uh, for sure has seen a massive uh, decrease in the amount that they're investing in fossil fuels so about three years ago they had 128 million invested in fossil fuels and now that's down to about 40 million so the pressure can work you know and people are starting to see that we need the change so yeah i guess i've been doing a you know a combination of still still working to earn a living campaigning and talking to people and spreading the word and taking action amazing yeah and i uh, i know there's yeah i've sort of seen about the uh divestment campaigns going on if that's something people are interested in then I would definitely encourage them to look into that um and with the so coming up to more recently so you have uh obviously last year at Shell's AGM you'd just quit um and then you've but you've gone back and you've addressed the executive committee at their AGM this year and what was that about what did you say yeah so actually people may have seen in the media that there you know there was a big action at the Shell AGM, which was uh, that was organised by, by Fossil uh, Free London, so I was kind of very connected to them. Was that uh, where they like stormed the stage? Yeah. I think I saw videos of that. Yeah, so there's lots of things. I'll just give a little bit of background to that. So they've previously been at you know there's previously a previous eight Shell AGMs and not just Shell but other fossil fuel companies. You know there has been quite a presence of people who have then yeah deliberately disrupted by actually standing up and singing and chanting, um, asking questions, making statements, 
Um, and yeah, you know, because things are getting worse and no action is being taken, you know, there are some type I mean, these groups, Extinction Rebellion, the Fossil Free Movement, entirely uh, peaceful, nonviolent, direct action. You know, there's absolutely no risk to anyone there that they're going to come to any harm. Actually, the harm is more likely to come to the activists because they are eventually hoisted out by security, which is uh, what, what happened. But there was also an opportunity to ask questions directly to uh, the executive board in what they termed civilised debate. So I had submitted a question, but I didn't ask the question that I submitted. I, I, I you know, if, I, if I'd done that, I, they probably would have not let me in. Um, but so I, <laughs> so you, you submitted a, a sort of a, a mask question. And then when you actually yeah. came to speak, you had something else prepared. It, it, exactly. So, yeah. So I made a statement to them really about their safety performance, particularly. So something called process safety. So process safety in the fossil fuel industry means keeping it in the pipe so as opposed to just general safety which is where you know you're hoping to protect uh your, your workers from any injury or fatalities process safety is re really very much about making sure that what's in the pipe so whether that's you know oil or gas or any other um fluid or or, or, or yeah any other fluid that they are uh, working with stays in the pipe so there's no leaks and and uh, no spills and no explosions no fires etc so that was really the job that i was doing um at, at shell from a behavioral point of view so i really wanted to talk to them about in general uh their disregard for the environment but very specifically about their operations in nigeria in the Niger Delta, uh, Shell have been operating there since the mid 1950s. I don't know if you if the listeners are aware, but they have really devastated the Niger Delta, which uh, was a very special um, environment environment with lots of mangroves. You know, the Niger Delta is a, is a, is a river estuary uh, uh, that you know was a beautiful kind of uh, forest. And there was lots of farming done there and people fished and, and now it is so contaminated by oil spills, you know, that the, the land, the water, the air is poisonous uh, and people are trying to live amongst that. So they've been doing that for decades. There's been a lot of legal action against Shell uh, from people in Nigeria, just, you know, asking for looking for uh, them to stop the harms, but also to compensate for the harms that they've done. The, U the United Nations ordered Shell quite some years ago to clean up that part of the Niger Delta that they had damaged. To date, they haven't really done that. There are still people waiting for compensation from Shell for incidents that happened, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so it's a really... Uh, difficult, challenging uh, in environment, both, you know, for the people who live there and, and for the people who are employed uh, by the fossil fuel industry there. So I really just wanted to highlight to the Shell Executive Committee what I what has been going on there. They should know, but I wanted to highlight to them what I had been hearing from employees and contractors working in Shell in Nigeria through the surveys that I've been running since 2012. And, and the most recent one, which was just before I quit, actually. So I kind of read some statements uh, to them, quoted some results to them, you know, that, for example, you know, kind of like 40% of their workforce in Nigeria said that they don't have adequate personnel to conduct their operations safely. 
Um, so, you know, they're short-staffed. They're hugely short-staffed. Short 35% said that they're not doing their maintenance on safety-critical equipment. Uh, so that means repairs, basically. They're not repairing the equipment uh, and, you know, the infrastructure in a timely manner. So that obviously creates huge risks. You know, if you've got uh, ru- rust, <laughs> um, you know, something is rusting, something yeah. is broken. I imagine that could go very, very badly wrong and result in like significant injury or loss of life. Exactly. And pollution, because that means leaks and spills or it could mean fires or, or, you know, sometimes um, spills aren't, uh, the leaks aren't just uh, oil. You know, there could be gas, uh, you know, gas going into the atmosphere as well. And and kind of like, so there were some other statistics, you know, uh, around that. And they're also... 35% 35% of their own workforce said that they believed that management were putting production and profits ahead of process safety. Um, and that there was a lack of trust, you know, there was a considerable lack of trust that, that management were going to address the workers' concerns. So there were some statistics and then, you know, there were there was quotes from people from, from the survey saying, you know, the way that we're, you know, the way that we've reduced manpower, the way that we're not um, maintaining our equipment, this is a recipe for process safety incidents you know there's too much stuff that's broken down or, or equipment that is not working properly you know that's really making us vulnerable to more process safety incidents and so you know genuinely genuinely afraid now that may or may not have been known to the executive uh, committee but what shell will often say is that these leaks and spills in the niger delta are not down to their poor management of their operations they're simply because local people which they refer to as pirates smugglers and thieves uh, tap into the pipelines uh, you know that that are running through the delta in order to steal the barrel of oil now that is a hugely risky thing to do and people have been horribly injured and 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 there's been many uh, have died trying to do that but they're desperate you know they're desperate because they've got no They've got no no way of uh, maintaining a livelihood for themselves any longer because the lands and the and the water are so and the air are so polluted. But that you know no, no one is no one is denying that 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 doesn't happen. But Shell will try and tell you that ninety five percent of all their leaks and spills are a result of that sabotage. They call it people you know sabotaging or, or stealing from the pipeline. Perhaps. What the workers are saying might indicate that isn't the case. You know, that isn't necessarily the case. And and actually, you know, Shell are obliged to report to the Nigerian government the number of spills that they have, not from sabotage, but just from their operations. And it's really quite high. You know, it's about 17 million litres of oil they Um, have leaked. Oh, my goodness. In, in a period between, not a very long period of time, between I think it was 2015 and, 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 and 2020, um, the, the government say, the Nigerian government say it's much higher than that. So, you know, they love this story to tell, the, and they tell it internally because I've heard it repeatedly. Oh, it's sabotage. Oh, we can't do anything about it. It's, you know, they're, they're stealing. They're, they're doing this to themselves. And that's just not always necessarily uh, the case. And we have to look at, well, why are they doing this? How, you know, even if sabotage is happening or success is happening, why are they doing it? Or is it because, you know, you've devastated their lands and they've got no... They've got nothing left. Is it because you're not securing that pipeline 
you know, you're, you, you're, it's your, you know, if you are the operator, you are responsible for that pipeline. You can't just say we're not responsible for it. Um, but what they often do is they abandon some infrastructure. They don't decommission it like you would expect. So if this was in the North Sea, for example, they wouldn't get away with doing this. You know, you can't there just abandon um, a well. You know, you can't just abandon your infrastructure. You would have to decommission it and, and then, you know, kind of deconstruct it in a responsible way. But they don't do that out there. They just walk away from operations that are not profitable and just leave the infrastructure lying around. So some of what people are tapping into, you know, is is is, is old stuff or stuff that's just not, you know, it's just not profitable. So the response from the uh, executive committee, the CEO at the, uh, at the AGM, was really to kind of just try and, you know, push that responsibility onto the people do, doing the sabotage. When 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 I said to them, look, one of your one of your own staff said that it's actually shell, it's on shell to improve making those pipelines and wellheads more secure and safe. Uh, you know, he kind of dismiss, they kind of dismissed that. So they really just kind of like dismissed the whole thing and actually ultimately said, well. You know, it doesn't really matter because we're walking away from Shell Nigeria. Because my my actual question to them, Shona, was, you know, why are you withholding funding to 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 maintain uh, and safely operate your own assets? And will you commit the necessary finances and resources to prevent harms to the workers and the communities, and prevent uh, environmental loss? You know, loss of life and loss of nature. And you know, their answer was pretty much, well, it's not profitable anymore. Uh, they refer to it as a risk reward ratio. Um, they're walking away. You know, they're going to kind of uh, stop uh, stop their oil onshore oil production, uh, sell off basically, sell off the, the, their assets. So it's kind of like you know, I feel like they've taken a massive dump in the, the Niger Delta. They've taken all the money that they possibly can uh, profitably, and now they're just you know they're just kind of w- walking away. Uh, leaving the communities to deal with the devastation. And that is a massive, massive injustice that I really just wanted to shine the light on, really, and, and make people aware that this is really what's happening. You know, this is what's happening out of sight. Uh, not many people will know about this. You know, when we think about Shell, we probably think about forecourts and petrol stations and, you know, maybe the the nice logo that they have and that they've been around for years and, and we don't think about the very real devastation uh, that they've caused, uh, you know, in, in places that are far away uh, from us and that we just don't see. And it's interesting because they, um, <clears throat> it, it sounds like they're trying to turn it being like, oh, well, we're we're leaving anyway. So in, they could try and greenwash it being like, well, we're not going to be in that area yeah. without sort of acknowledging that the infrastructure that they've put in is still there, albeit in a quite a damaged form. And so it will be used for sabotage, which will result in more leaks. And also, yeah. it doesn't mean that they're um, acquiring less gas and oil. They're just shifting their attention somewhere else where they feel it will be more profitable. So although they might try and spin it as, oh, well, we're leaving the Niger Delta anyway, so you should be happy now, is actually the long-term consequences of what they've done are still very much there. Uh, absolutely absolutely right now one of the things that the ceo did say was well we're, we're stopping with oil but we're going to focus massively on gas there is a lot of gas in um that in, in nigeria a huge amount in fact they are the world's fifth biggest exporter 
of um, liquefied natural gas. Uh, that's, you know, they take uh, gas and they put it into a liquid form so it can be shipped around the world. Um, so they, they're saying that that's, you know, they're going to they're going to concentrate on, on on gas. Now, that won't be any that won't be any better, really, for the for the ordinary people in Nigeria. You would think that after nearly 70 years of operations there that, you know, all the oil and gas that, that Nigeria has, that the people would be would have access, you know, access to uh, heating and lighting and, you know, constant electricity and and be able to cook with, with gas and stuff. But they don't, you know, the people do not benefit from this. And this is a startling statistic, really, for all those years, 70 years of um, extraction from the Niger Delta. Um, like I say, you know, just they're the fifth, fifth biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Only 12% of Nigerian homes have an indoor clean cooking facility. So that's that's shocking that they are, you know, they they are paying the price and none of the benefits of having that industry in their, you know, on, on their lands. And it, and it really is such a massive injustice. Yeah, I guess I was about to say, I mean, what one thing that... I was about to ask one question that might come back with is that we'll, you know, at least Shell are providing jobs in the area. But then from what you're saying, actually, it's so exploitative is that the local people, um, yeah, aren't feeling the benefits from it. And in fact, it's ruined uh, the area so much that other industries going on, like fishing or farming in the area, have been massively impacted. So they can't uh, even sort of shift to different jobs that used to be there in the past, maybe. 100 percent so i mean actually you, you would think that they would be a huge employer but they're they're not such a huge employer i mean they you know that's not so they shall don't employ people i mean they they often have ship in a lot of expat people you know from, from from the west to go in and do the managerial um posts um and they use a lot of contractors uh local contractors who i've had people i've had contractors in the surveys literally calling out saying please sir please can you help us because we haven't been paid my family is starving you know so i've heard reports directly from contractors and from shell staff in nigeria saying you know the treatment of contractors is absolutely appalling they have gone months sometimes up to six months without being paid um literally coming to work saying you know i cannot feed i cannot feed myself i cannot feed my family um, you know, in a terrible state. Now, imagine that you've got someone doing a really important job on a on a rig, you know, on an onshore, even an onshore or offshore rig, um, and they are coming to work in a state of that much stress and strain. You know, their, their mind's not going to be on the job, you know, that they're going to be worried and, and, and very stressed. And it's just appalling that they're being treated like that. Now, again, Shell will say, oh, we've paid the contractor. We've paid the main contractor. It's their responsibility to make sure that their people uh, get that pay. Well, no, not really. They're on your site. You know, it's a bit like saying we're not responsible for the pipeline being broken into. You've got to take responsibility for this. It's your operation. As the operator, you are responsible for everyone on site and their welfare. Um, and, you know, it's just not it's, it's, it's just not good enough, really. So there is a huge amount of exploitation there. You're you're absolutely right. You know, the, but, but there has been huge fight back. You know, I don't want to paint people as being, you know, passive victims. The people in Nigeria have been fighting this for decades, um, you know, with terrible consequences uh, to people uh, there. That, that's for sure. And, um, 
you know, they stand up, they stand up repeatedly. And there are, I don't know if people are aware that there are currently huge numbers of cases going through the British courts uh, where uh, people from the Niger Delta communities are taking shell uh, to court, suing them for the damage done. Currently, there are 14,000 individual cases being brought before the courts in Britain uh, against Shell, um, and, you know, for, 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 for compensation, for reparations, uh, and just to stop the harms. Um, so, you know, there is a huge uh, spirit of um, standing up um, in, in those communities, and we just need to do what we can to support them uh, to bring those actions uh, against Shell and others who have devastated their environments. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you um, so much for sort of filling us in on all of that. Um, before we kind of get to the wrap up and sort of what, how people can get involved, you also wanted to talk briefly about Wessex Water. Was that right? Something closer to home, but still yeah. something well, going on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for that, Shona, because, you know, we don't suffer those kind of pollutions so much here in the here in the UK because regulations are, are much tighter for the industry. But what we are seeing is, you know, the seas and our inland waterways are still are being massively polluted um, because of, you know, utter mismanagement uh, of the, uh, you know, of, of, of our of our water systems by the likes of Western Water, Bristol Water. So there's been a lot of campaigning recently. I expect people have heard of this, you know, in the news um, where the water companies, all private now in the UK, you know, are being taken to task for their dumping of sewerage uh, into our into our seas along the coast but also our uh, our inland rivers as well and just just wanted to highlight so something I for the first time in my life um, this April I have not paid my Wessex water bill um, and I am about to write to them actually today uh, to explain why I, I haven't done that because I just think you know they are paying out huge uh dividends, profits to the owners. So I don't know if people are aware, but Wessex Water is wholly owned by a company called the YTL Corporation, who are a Malaysian-owned massive conglomerate of companies. I mean, it's it's absurd uh, that that is the case, but it is. And, you know, we, we would call, when I say we, you know, local campaigners, but also uh, Surfers Against Sewerage are really active on this, saying, you know, they cannot pay, they should not pay any more uh, dividends, profits out to the owners until they improve the infrastructure uh, in, you know, in our in our Wessex area, because the devastation to the coastline, um, to the inland rivers and to people's health, you know, for everyone in the summer's coming up. I live in Weymouth. You know, it's it was great to see so many people on the beach uh, over the weekend, uh, people in, playing in the sea. Very nice. But, you know, the chances of a turd passing your nose when you're swimming is quite high uh, because there is releases of sewage directly uh, into those waterways. And that's bad for people's health. It's bad for marine uh, wildlife, um, you know, and it's bad for the for the contribution of further pollution to the general uh, world's oceans. So, yeah, so I think, you know, we do have problems uh, closer to home. They're not as devastating as the ones uh, that I've seen in in, in my Nigeria, but I would just urge people to contact Wessex Water and uh, ask them what their plans are because they announced in the news just last week, I think, that yes, they were going to have a programme of infrastructure improvement, but they were going to ask, they were going to have to put our bills up in order to do that. Well, no, surely they should just be not paying out any um, 
profits uh, to dividend holders if they, uh, sorry, to shareholders if they, uh, if they need more money to invest. I don't see why uh, we should be paying for that. So I will be writing to them explaining why I'm not paying my bill or that I'm willing to pay a portion of it, but not, not to, not, not the bit that will go to the, uh, to the shareholders. No, well, I mean, yeah, there's that's definitely been a big a big thing across the UK, and that um, sounds I hadn't heard of someone sort of uh, refusing to pay the bill yet, but that sounds like a, a potentially very interesting interesting development. Um, and yeah, how so? Yeah, how can people if they want to? We've talked about how they can sort of uh, write to Wessex Water. How could people get involved in supporting the supporting the Niger Delta activists or sort of? Um, Call, we talked a bit about uh, divesting uh, pension funds. How can people get involved in those campaigns? Yeah, that is probably e- easier to get involved in. So the divestment campaigns. So there is a website, and I'll give you the address. So it is www.dtaction.co.uk forward slash swap. So dtaction.co.uk forward slash swap. SWAP. So that um, that if you go to that website, that web page, you will see a, um, just an introduction to SWAP. So SWAP stands for Southwest Action on Pensions, and you will see there is a map on there. And if you click on your county or area, uh, if it's including uh, what was the Avon, what was Avon for Bristol because it's still called the Avon Pension Fund, you can you can go to the page. So on each of those pages, you will find. There is a petition, there's information on how to write to the pension fund, there's a contact for you, for the local divestment action group. Um, if you're a member of a trade union um, and you happen to be an employee as well of the one of the local authorities, you know, you can pass motions asking the, uh, the uh, for your union to ask the pension fund to divest. So there's there's like a kind of little toolbox uh, on each of the pages there. So yeah, dtaction.co.uk forward slash S-W-A-P. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Caroline. That's been really interesting. Is there any final words you want to leave us with? No, just to say, well, thank you so much, Shona, for the opportunity. Thanks to the listeners. And just say, you know, the time is now. We are running out of time to take action. Um, so, yeah, please try, you know, mobilise with your with your local either Extinction Rebellion group, Divestment Action Group. Um, find your tribe um, and take, take whatever action you can because we can still you know, save ourselves and save nature, but time is running out. So, yeah, please, uh, please do what you can. This is BCFM. And thank you, Caroline, for that very interesting interview. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of what she talked about. And it was fascinating to hear from someone um, sort of yeah, trying to improve Shell from the inside, then realizing it was just so focused on profit and avoiding responsibility it couldn't be improved. So I think that almost brings us to the end of our show. Thank you to Karen for the interview. Thank you, our listeners, for listening. Without you, there is no show. Please do join us next week when we are going to be talking to a very special guest, Michael Jemfrey from the organisation SIL. SIL is a global faith-based non-profit that works with local communities around the world to develop language solutions that expand possibilities for better life. They believe that Indigenous peoples' languages are key to caring for the environment and he will be telling us all about how they are trying to bring these communities and people who speak minority languages into the global conversation. And for those of you who think, oh, maybe that surname, that sounds a bit familiar. Yeah, you guessed right. He also happens to be my dad. So I'm really looking forward to doing that, hanging out with him live on air next week. 
picking some tunes and catching up with all his work around uh, language work and how that intersects with caring for the environment. Next up on BCFM is lunchtime with Tristan B. So keep it locked BCFM for more tunes and chat. But that's all from me, Shona Jemfrey, for now. So please take care. Have a good day. Look after yourselves, look after the planet and look after each other. This is the podcast version of One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show broadcast every Tuesday at 11am on BCFM radio, available on 93.2 FM, on digital radio and on the BCFM website. The show was produced and presented by Shona Jemfrey. You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.